Hey everybody, welcome back to the big show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. As always, we are your co-host, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Yes, uh, I'm here. And Pastor Dom and Riley, predator <laughs> and the techno-viking, oh, <laughs> apparently <laughs> suffering from some debilitating upper respiratory mm. disease. Mm, or a peanut, whatever. Or a peanut, either way. <laughs> As the comedian said, if a nut can kill you, maybe you're not supposed to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's so true. My my room sounds different, and your room sounds different. I took down my curtain. It does. So now you took I'm, down your curtain because you're moving. Uh huh. And you. I'm in the office at church because my wife kicked me out of the house. Fair enough. But that was the project long term, anyway, right? It was. She didn't kick me out. She just assured me that she would be vacuuming during the recording of this podcast, and therefore, if I didn't want that noise, that's right. Yes, I, I am moving. To, uh, I didn't. I, I don't know what when we talked about it. Going to Wisconsin. Bought a house. Gonna move. Yeah. It's gonna have a nice little studio space too. I'm moving towards Mexico about one mile at a time, and you're moving closer to me one mile at a time. So yeah. maybe by the time you get a call to Minnesota, that's when I'll actually get my call to Mexico. Hey, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I haven't even started in Wisconsin yet. <laughs> I'm putting down roots, man. I'm putting that's down right. roots. That's the old Adam in a nutshell. Never satisfied. There you go. I got backup plans too. So I'm all good. That's right. I got backups too, my backups. I'm always hustling. <laughs> <laughs> mo money, mo money, mo money. If you're a member of the parish that I will be serving shortly, uh, don't be concerned. That's right. You called Gillespie, not Riley. <laughs> Whew. Actually, in some ways, this podcast is a reminder to your new congregation of how fortunate they are to have you. <laughs> yeah. This is kind of what happens uh, in the call process, right? Like mm, You go yeah. through the whole thing. Everybody looks really good on paper, and then... Um, and then reality right. sets in. It's like an arranged marriage. It is, exactly. <laughs> then you got to figure it out. That's right. And yet, no matter how difficult our work is undercutting the work of the Spirit, he still seems to find a congregation for each pastor. Yeah, and find pastors for congregations. Find, it, yeah. it somehow works. Jonah-like pastors for Nineveh-like congregations. Yeah. Well, I'm not that reluctant. <laughs> well, no, because you've been without a call for long enough now that yeah, I've been there. you're running toward Nineveh. You're like, I'll take it. If Jonah doesn't want it, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> it could mean death. Yeah, but the house has a nice kitchen. So There you go. <laughs> That's right. You got to have your priorities. <laughs> That's right. If Mama Bear's happy, everyone's happy. Bingo. There we go. I think that was that was wildly sexist. That I just As long as the kitchen's big enough for the wife, everyone's happy. It is kind of the center of the home. Well, your wife is barefoot and pregnant most of the year, though. So uh, Most of the last 20 years. Yeah. <sighs> mm-hmm. So it's not sexist. That's just a fact. Hmm. Physical reality. <laughs> They're physical reality. Uh, I don't want to go on too long, but uh, because we have decided we are diving into Martin Luther's commentary on St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians 1535. His epic. After the bondage of the will. Epic. This is. Work. This is his. Yeah, this is his Iliad or his Odyssey. Actually, I think, I think in the uh, foreword, they even use the word epic. Yep. Epoch changing yeah. lectures. There we go. Wow. Uh, for certain. But uh, I'm excited for several reasons, as Pastor Gillespie is. One, because we have the brand new translation of Luther's commentary on Galatians, translated by my brother, by another mother, Geraldo Camacho, mm-hmm. um, and forward by Michael Horton. This is published by 1517 Legacy Project. Um, for sake of full disclosure, Gillespie and I work for 1517, producing another podcast, Band mm-hmm. Books Podcast. Yeah. And... Um, so this is a fantastic translation, in my opinion, because, again, for several reasons. One, Camacho is not a native English speaker. He mm-hmm. is a Spanish speaker. He's Colombian. So originally, he translated this into Spanish from the Latin, which makes sense if you know Spanish, because Spanish is gutter Latin. Right. Yeah. And yeah. myself, having lived in Mexico and Central America, if I were given the task of translating Latin, I would actually much rather translate it into Spanish for that reason. Mm. Because it's, it's a much more binary translation. It's almost, uh, what do you want to say, like a cognate or something, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, both inflected languages, whereas mm-hmm. English, not, and therefore the translation work from Latin to, to English, even German to English, really, yeah. is difficult. We've kind of gone so far away from the Anglo-Saxon uh, roots of our English, language. Hebrew to English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. It. Just anything to English is a difficulty. So, uh, one, I appreciate it for that sense that he translates it into Spanish, and then it's read, and 1517 says, hey, 
This is fantastic. This is a phenomenal translation, the work that you've done here. Yeah. Can you, can you spend another couple of years of your life translating it into English for us? And this is, in my opinion, like I said, um, I've said this in previous podcasts, I prefer the Middleton edition of the Galatians commentary, which was the first English language translation of Luther's Galatians commentary. And therefore, the Middleton edition is Old English, hmm. but the translation is more binary, like I said, because at that time, the Anglo-Saxon language is much more closely related to German, still, still cousins. Right. And therefore... And you have people going to Wittenberg and coming back. Tyndale, for example, lived in Wittenberg with Luther and actually referred his Bible translation to Luther's Bible translation. Yeah. And it's not just translation of the Bible, but translation of, mm -hmm. of a work like this, a commentary. Yes, correct. Um, the context matters because mm -hmm. that does give some you know, theological agenda, right? Mm -hmm. And that's always been my contention then since I first started reading the Galatians lectures every summer for my graduate work, my doctor father, Jim Nestigan, and I, for three months, would either read the Galatians lectures out loud to each other, or we would read the bondage of the will, and we would alternate years. So for six and a half years, so for seven summers, we either read Galatians or the bondage of the will. That was our summer study. And that was always my complaint anyways, was the Middleton edition was such a good translation. It had such a good ear for the translation and the English edition for all of its... Uh, benefits. I just didn't feel, I felt it was more wooden. Oh, I see. And a lot of modern translations, I have that opinion about them. They're, they're too wooden. They're too, they're too focused on literal translation and they don't capture the spirit of Luther oh, I see. or the way that Luther spoke. Whereas Camacho, I think actually does a very admirable job of capturing how Luther spoke. Right. And therefore this is not only a very readable translation of the Galatians lectures, but it's fun to read, as you noted at the very outset, when <laughs> you open the book and you get to, uh, let's hear it for self-righteousness and its 50 select virtues resulting from works, as penned by Apostle Paul to the Galatians. And there's a long footnote that points out, the fastidious nature of the title is, of course, obvious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He gets it. He gets it. Yeah. Um, which makes this not only fun to read, but also then really, I think, gets across Luther's original intent and the spirit of what Luther was lecturing, how he was lecturing to his students. And, and there, the um, table of contents, how mm -hmm. Luther himself continues with that sort of mm, aggressive humor, right? That's and, a good way to put it, aggressive yeah, humor, guttural. Yeah, like how each chapter and verse how it undermines, um, namely right. the Roman doctrine of, of self, you know, self-righteous works. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So there's that, and so I can't, I can't recommend this highly enough as a readable translation, as a translation that's easy to get into, that you want to keep reading, mm -hmm. um, and the way it's broken up by date. Yeah. Not just by chapter and verse, but by date, so you can kind of follow along with, or you can follow along with how Luther spaced out his lectures. And and as I was said, to provide a little bit of background before we dive into it, Luther thought he was going to die during these lectures. Luther thought he was going to die a lot, granted, but <laughs> yeah. sometimes it was hyperbole. It was kind of like Fred Sanford. This is the big one, Elizabeth. And other times it was legitimate. And as anybody who reads a, doc, a biography of Luther by either Obermann or Kittleson or Brecht or whoever, right. he had a lot of physical ailments as a consequence of what he did to himself in the monastery. Yes, and probably poor diet, exercise. Poor diet and exercise, which was exacerbated by what he did to himself in the monastery. But also, again, it's 1520, 1530. These people are savages. They all Let's have not forget that. habits. They all have a well. There's no potable water for the most part, so they drink meat all day long. Heavily starchy diet, very starchy diet. Uh -huh. A lot of meat and potatoes, not a lot of healthy cruciferous vegetables and so forth. Um, in Wittenberg, they did have fish at least, but no, the the diet and the overall lifestyle of a 16th century German, especially a peasant, not healthy, mm. not healthy. No. And in the, same, in the same way, in 500 years, God willing, people will look back at us and go, what a bunch of savages. I can't believe they ate that way. I can't believe that's the way they thought you should you know, keep yourself healthy. Organic cane sugar. Organic, organic cane sugar. 
I, I opened up a drink this morning. It's It said natural, no artificial flavors, natural energy drink. And then I open it and I see on the can, organic cane sugar. Right. Well, it's natural. Like all cane sugar is organic. Well, they're saying no pesticides, but regardless. Sure they are. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as no pesticides these days, especially with Monsanto. It's in the water, man. It's in the seeds. And so therefore, to bring it full circle then, there is an urgency to these lectures because the plague is in Wittenberg. Mm. They had to evacuate Wittenberg. Luther chose to stay along with Katie and their family. Luther had lost his daughter a couple of years previous to this. He was suffering from bleeding ulcers on his legs. He had an inner ear disease. He might've suffered a minor stroke or heart attack uh, right before these lectures started. There's a lot going on. The Turks are still at the gates of Vienna. They're constantly threatening. Uh, obviously, Augsburg happens in 1530, 31. So that's all fresh. Yeah. There's a lot going on in these lectures. And so, at least the way that my doctor father taught it to me, if you want a quote-unquote systematic theology, this is it. This is Luther's systematic theology. Yeah, and and maybe there's a sense of desperation, right? Urgency or desperation, Uh, sure. Urgency is right. But, you know, I mean, he was concerned at this point about some of the Mm -hmm. directions that that the— that the reformers had had been going and his fellow reformers right oh for certain you had the saxon visitations the peasants revolt but even um, some of his fellow you know wittenberg folks he's, yes. he's very concerned about their you know the tack that they're absolutely taking. well some had already defected like karlstadt mm-hmm. and agricola others well the rift between him and melanchthon that occurred after his debate with erasmus in 1525 the formulation of the quote-unquote lutheran church now mm-hmm. after augsburg that Luther's not an organizer. And again, I look into the wall of history and I see my own reflection. I'm not an administrative type of person. I'm a creative person. And I focus and function best when I'm teaching because my thoughts are being formulated in real time sure. as I'm speaking. Sure. I see that a lot. So Luther doesn't write a quote unquote systematic theology book like Calvin does with his institutes. Yeah. I mean, what, how has he been described more like, uh, what is it, wild boar An in occasional the theologian. He's a wild boar in the vineyard. Yeah. Right? Just kind of running loose. Or as he describes, he's like a dog that you let off the chain, right? That once he's off the chain, you, you just can't get him back on. Hmm. No, that's it. He's got to be free. In fact, Pastor Borgart describes me that way to other people. <laughs> Riley's like a dog that you let off the chain. You can't get him back on. It's like he's got a nose for the gospel, and once he gets a, he gets a nose full of it, he's just off. You can't control him. You're not going to cause too many problems. No, I might dig up your roses and Defecate. <laughs> attack the mailman, but <laughs> right everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. I am a boar in the vineyard. I am a wild ass of a man, as one pastor called me. <laughs> but nonetheless, this is Luther. So therefore, if you want to find Luther's systematic theology, if there is such a thing. It's in his biblical lectures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And most pointedly, the reason this Galatians lecture, Galatians commentary, which is something that Melanchthon came up with, it's a humanist term, commentary. Luther called them lectures. Mm-hmm. If you really want to find Luther at his most Luther, it's the Galatians commentary, which is why the, it, they translated this within a decade of them being delivered the first time into yeah. English, that is, Middleton does. And I think it's 1536, 1538. Is it 1538? I think the Middleton edition is 1538. So literally like within three years wow. of Luther publishing these, they're published in English, which yeah. if you understand what's happening in England in the 1530s, that's a very dangerous proposition. Yeah, it's kind of a hostile place to be religiously. Mm-hmm. Especially if you want to propagate the works of Martin Luther. Yeah, it just depends on who but, the king or queen is at the moment. So there's a desperation to Luther's lectures. There's mm-hmm. an urgency because he's worried about his legacy. He's worried about the Reformation, which he brings up a lot. Which is interesting because I mean, when he sets out, he's not thinking legacy right? No. But it's only kind of looking back upon, you know, everything that's happened over the last 20 years, right? For him. Correct. That, um, no, there's an importance here. The work that's being done isn't, it isn't immaterial. It wasn't, it's not just about penance anymore, right? It's much, it's a much bigger, there's a much bigger need. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, this is about whether the gospel is going to be preserved at all in Germany for him. Well, just a little, a little snippet, a little snapshot to give you a, a view into Luther's mindset, when he's a monk, he lives in the Black Cloister. Within a decade, he is given the Black Cloister as a gift mm-hmm. by Frederick to live yeah. in. It's a nice place, actually. So, ima- so imagine living in a dormitory on a college campus, and then 10 years later, they just give you that. We could fit like in how, my family. How weird would that be to be given an entire building 
with a brewery and a printing press and mm-hmm. a full kitchen that, uh, large enough to house, you know, take care of all of those monks and so forth. Right. That's that's a huge shift for Luther from taking about poverty to within a decade being, or less than a decade, being told, here, here's the keys. Plus he married, he married into money too. And he married into money, exactly. So there's a lot at play by the time we get to these lectures. Not just his physical health, but socially he's different. Mm-hmm. He's been changed. And therefore, yeah, there's much more at stake for him, and there's much more on the table. Yeah. Because you look at Heidelberg, most of his complaints in Heidelberg or thereabouts, they're about the papacy. The fanatics haven't really raised their heads yet. The the heavenly prophets aren't there. The Anabaptists haven't really come about. Zwingli, uh, Bucer, all of these people are not really in the mix yet, and now they are. Right. And the quote-unquote Lutheran Reformation, the Saxon Reformation, has created... Well, numerous reformations, numerous schisms and sects. Mm. And he's got to shoulder that, or does, I should say. So he's he's feeling the weight of that, feeling, mm. you know, this thing that I've started, or, or the, the Holy Spirit started, really, is how he would say it. Um, Correct. You know, I have a responsibility uh, to, yeah. to ensure that, it, that it's seen through. Right. Mm. And so very much then when he reads Paul's Galatians letter, his epistles to Galatians, he resonates. Yeah. He gets it. The urgency that Paul writes to the Galatians is the urgency that he lectures to his own students. Because mm. ultimately, it's not the Reformation that's at stake for Luther. It's the gospel. Yeah. Absolutely. That's kind of the point. In the, in the epistle to the Galatians, what's at stake? The gospel. Mm-hmm. For Luther, what's at stake? The gospel. Who's attacking Paul? The disciples of James come up from Jerusalem. Supposed Christians. Who's attacking Luther, the Roman Catholics, and the Anabaptists, and his own colleagues? Supposed Christians. Right. Why are they attacking these two men? The gospel. Yeah. They've come to spy out his freedom. That's right. So let's dive in then and get going on this. We're going to spend as many episodes as we feel like on this <laughs> epistle to the Galatians. So if you don't like the Galatians, you're going to want to tune out for the next couple of months. Or if you don't like Luther. Which or if you don't like Luther. I don't know what's wrong with you, but right. whatever. It's called as Lutheran as it gets. It's freedom in advertising. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But we've also gotten great feedback from our, when we've done series, you know. True enough. Right. The Peter series. Thank you again to everybody who gave us the feedback on the Peter's series when right. we read through Peter's commentaries. That was super helpful for us to know that you enjoyed it and you wanted it more of it. Because um, we're here for you, ultimately. That's why we do this. Right. So well, that's... Technically, we do this because we don't have anybody else to talk to. But the fact that you benefit from that. Uh, or like we like to talk to each other, maybe. I don't know. I guess. Well, yeah, we just record it. Yeah, exactly. So so this is from the foreword by Michael Horton, who you might know Michael through uh, the White Horse Inn. Yeah, modern Reformation. Uh, he's a Reformed theologian. Yep. Modern Reformation. He's a Reformed theologian. But at least the first paragraph here is super helpful, I think. Horton writes about Luther's lecture on the Galatians epistle. Everyone thinks Romans when the Reformation and Luther in particular comes to mind. Romans letters, the epistle to the Romans. Mm -hmm. But actually, it was Galatians that really consolidated things for the German reformer. Mm -hmm. Luther worked hard to understand Romans. His earliest lectures were not that far from what a usual Augustinian would have said in his day. As I've said before, in the Romans lectures in 1517, Luther is really trying to find traction for what starts to emerge in the Psalms lectures, mm-hmm, which right. is justification by faith alone, a new definition of righteousness. And therefore, the Romans lectures are really the proving grounds, the test lab for what he starts to sniff out in the Psalms. And yet, like we talk about in relation to the Heidelberg Disputation, I would argue the true Reformation doesn't, ex- the explosion that re- leads to the Reformation doesn't happen until 1518 at Heidelberg. That really it's the Heidelberg theses that start, that launch everybody, one way or the other, pro or con Luther, into this new era. And you see those uh, thoughts really mature by 1521. So just a couple more years. Yeah, for right? certain. And if you want to see how this works, read Martin Breck's biography of Luther. He spends a little bit more time around Heidelberg and also points to and illustrates other people's letters home from Heidelberg or people when they got back from Heidelberg, what they said about what they heard. Mm. And he kind of fleshes out the, the the response to Heidelberg in his biography. Nice. So yeah, the Galatians lectures of 1521 are all right. 
as far as that goes. But if you compare them to 1535, you can see an obvious arc in Luther's maturity as a theologian, sure. exegete, lecturer. Well, God willing, so, that yeah, happens with every theologian, right? I hope so. As I've said before, I, ha- I keep a journal that I wrote in 1996 when I was barely a Christian convert hmm. and I was a missionary. And I keep it around every- so that every once in a while when I'm really feeling myself, I read it yeah. and it horrifies me how immature I was. We've talked about that in reviewing like past sermons on a text. Um, you yeah. get the same kind of experience from that. Like, right. wow. Wow, that was one, way too long. And uh, <laughs> and two, mm, not entirely intelligible. Um, right. And three, um, not quite there. Yeah. So in a certain sense, Heidelberg sets the trajectory of Luther Mm. theologically. The bondage of the will cements his trajectory. The catechism summarized that trajectory, mm-hmm. and the Galatians lectures are really the landing point, the landing pad. He sticks the landing. Because as good as his Genesis lectures are, in my opinion, he never surpasses the Galatians commentaries. No, but it's a really different kind of both lecture material, right? Mm-hmm. It's a different sure. kind of text. It's in a narrative text, right. less so than a dogmatic well, and text. And it's a, it's a combative text to begin with. The letter itself is, is yeah. combative. Right. Yeah. So it's Luther. I mean, Paul is looking for a fight. Yeah. It's aggressive. <laughs> or I should say, essentially, Paul's saying, you brought the fight to me, so now I'm going to swing back. And that's essentially what Luther's saying in his lectures. They brought the fight to me. So, okay, we got to scrap. So he's, he's seeing himself in Paul's story. For certain. He does that quite often. Ident- he's identifying with Paul. I understand yeah. you. Yeah. So Luther worked hard to understand Romans, but... Those early lectures weren't far from what any typical Augustinian theologian, Augustinian monk would teach. Later, Horton continues, he came, Luther came to see more light from Romans, especially what Paul meant by, quote, the righteousness from God. Not the righteousness of God, which is what tripped Luther up originally. Right. That is, you have to be righteous in order to hang out with God because God is righteous, but rather through his translation of Romans, again, language matters, what he discovered is it's not the righteousness of God with which he expects us to be righteous, that mm-hmm. is, be perfect as I am perfect, but rather the righteousness from God is what makes us righteous. He yeah. does not discover but finds, or I'm sorry, he does not discover but creates that which he loves, as Luther says yes. of Heidelberg. The preposition matters, right? Because it's directional in this it case. It does. And Luther actually gets this from Psalm 32, mm-hmm. where he figures out from the Hebrew that righteousness literally means the forgiveness of sins, or sins not remembered, sins not recalled by God. Yeah. So to forgive sins is to become righteous, because God looks at us and says, I see Christ, I don't see sin. Well, and that, that goes to, to the point that, um, say with holiness, people usually think of that as what they think or say or do, right? Right. And <laughs> no, no, holiness... Um, there, well, if that's true, the only way that you can be holy is through the forgiveness of sins, right? Right. If all, right. all your... Holiness is a synonym for Jesus. That's true. <laughs> exactly. Who is holy? So, but one. That's right. Exactly. But, Horton continues, but it was Paul's letter to the church in Galatia that really gave Luther new categories for understanding the word of God. By 1531... When these lectures were given to seminarians in Wittenberg, Luther was, quote-unquote, Luther. Mm-hmm. The indefatigable leader of the magisterial reformation, I'm going to argue against that terminology, who stood guard at the golden door of the gospel. Which part? The magisterial? If this were Geneva, if this were Geneva, I would say that's an appropriate sentence. <laughs> but this is Wittenberg. As we said, Luther is guttural. He is savage. He is immediate. He is in the moment. And He's, Wittenberg isn't, I mean. Magisterial? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people uh, might be looking to Luther, but those are going right. to be the renegades. The uh, a city most famous for its fish, beer, and prostitutes. Right. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's by a degree college. And magisterial reformation is an old term that was used during the Luther Renaissance in the early to mid 20th century to describe different reformations or different periods ah, of the I reformation. See. Okay. Um, so it is it is a historically contextualized term. It comes from a very specific era. Um, so I know what he's talking about here as far as magisterial, meaning in the sense of we're organizing now. Yeah. Okay. This isn't a charismatic or evangelical reformation or even an apocalyptic reformation. This is the reformation this isn't settling a, down. This isn't a movement. Right. This isn't a movement. This is now we need to organize, thus magisterial from magister. Mm-hmm. 
And so this is really what um, the Galatians lectures are about, is this is Luther at his most Luther. Mm. And it's all about the golden door of the gospel, how the, the, golden how, door how Galatians the gospel. opens that door, really. That's right. To see it. So then skipping ahead to Luther's preface to the epistle to the Galatians, 1535. And as um, Camacho points out in the first footnote, in 1516, excuse me, in 1516, while Luther was still an Augustinian monk, he gave his first lecture on Galatians. The 1531 lectures manifest a much deeper understanding of Paul's teaching Mm -hmm. on justification. So I often reference the 1521 lectures on Galatians, which are published in the Luther's works. But there was the 1516 edition, even earlier, which is, how to put this? Hmm. Again, very Augustinian. Yeah, It's very much a theology of grace. He's still working out of the Roman Catholic theology of grace. So it's not so much about justification. It's about grace. Yeah, very much so with the first Psalms lectures as well. Right. right. It's like when people say sin and grace, that's actually an Augustinian distinction, not a Lutheran distinction. It was Augustine who distinguished the two categories, sin and grace. It wasn't Luther who did that. He does that in his earlier lectures because he's Augustinian. But as he moves away from August, Augustine's distinctions and starts making his own distinctions, he doesn't talk about sin and grace, notice. He talks about what? Sin and faith. Mm -hmm. And, or he'll talk about um, like simul used to set peccator sin and righteousness. He moves into a different set of categories or a different set of distinctions. Got it. Because that's what he's looking for is what is righteousness? What does that mean? Hmm. And so as you go from 1516 to 1521 to 1531, you'll see, like I said, this trajectory, this maturation in the language that he uses to exegete and to teach because he's moving further and further away from his Augustinian roots. Makes sense. So to dive in then to the preface to the epistle to the epistle mm. of the Galatians, Luther writes, I can hardly believe I was so wordy when I gave these public lectures on Paul's epistle to the Galatians, except for this little exhibit. Right. So he's putting uh, he's putting his stamp of approval on what were his students' notes, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. Which is always the case, by the way. Luther never took his lecture notes and then prepared them to publish because as he's about to point out, he doesn't think that that's actually a worthwhile pursuit. Why add words to what is already the word of God? Well, and as you know, um, from often from great teachers, you might receive their lecture notes that they give as a handout, but the real yes. gems are the things that uh, aren't on the they page. They say in between the lines. For example, I have all of my Dr. Father's notes, lectures, outlines on the Lutheran confessions. Mm -hmm. All of them. It's a giant three-ring binder. It's hundreds of pages. But as you pointed out, it were, it's his stories, his anecdotes, his asides that take place between the lines of the outline that are really the things that taught me to be a, how to be a teacher, how to be an exegete, how to be a theologian, how to right. think theologically. I always would pay attention to when they looked up from their notes. Right, exactly. So I'm, in a similar sense, also with preaching, if you work from a manuscript like I do because I'm an abstract, random abstract, I need, I'm a pattern guy. <laughs> right. You need some restraint. I do for a certain, if you don't want a 45 minute, you know, sermon on uh, the raising of Lazarus, where I explore every possible angle. Right. <laughs> yeah, I need focus. Luther is very much that way. So his, his students, although we also have to remember this is pre-modern, therefore it's pre-internet, pre-short attention span theater. Mm -hmm. And his students, two of whom became his personal secretaries, Dietrich and Jonas, they're with him all the time. They're with him at the table. They're with him when he travels. When he's walking up and down the street, they're right behind him. They're recording everything the man says. And therefore, when the Jena edition, for example, is published, that's their work primarily. Yeah. And so if there's anybody who's qualified to publish Luther's words, it's the guys who lived with him every day for decades. But it is an interesting note that this isn't always the case with things that are being printed in Luther's day, no. that, that the no, original no. You know, speaker would endorse these right. transcriptions of his lectures. Right. Well, and I've told the tale too, that since there's no copyright laws, Luther would print up his manuscript, give it to the messenger, the courier, give him five gulden to take it down the road, let's say 10 miles. Along the way, every village that messenger stopped in, he had a side business, to support the family, he would charge a Goulden to give the manuscript to a printer who would then make a copy of Luther's manuscript every town he stopped in. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So the further he had to go, the more money he stood to make. And then they would publish their own edition of Luther's works. Not always complete, sometimes in pamphlet form, sometimes in sections, so you, it was more affordable. Um, not always accurately. There may be pages missing or right. there would be commentary added by other people. Right. And, the, and in the case of Erasmus and Luther, Luther knew of Erasmus's response and vice versa before they even read the manuscript because word got went ahead of the manuscript. Oh, I see. This is what Erasmus wrote. Did you hear what Erasmus wrote? Well, no. How did you? Well, I was actually in the next town over, and I they started publishing the manus- the letters of Erasmus and the, the the manuscripts. And Luther's like, well, I haven't read any of that stuff yet. And they're like, oh, don't worry. It'll be here in three days. Yeah, exactly. And so he's finding out through the gossip chain what Erasmus is saying and vice versa. And that happened often. It was very common. Yeah. So Luther then says, I can hardly believe I was so wordy when I gave these public lectures on Paul's epistle to the Galatians, except for this little exhibit. However, I feel that all these thoughts are mine. The brothers, and by brothers, he's referring to Georg Rohrer, Veit Dietrich, and Caspar Kruseger in this sense. Rohrer was, didn't, wasn't Rohrer the one who, who made the woodcuts? Hmm, maybe. Was that Rohrer, one of the, huh? The, the catechism woodcuts. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember. Anyways, it seems that rings a bell. Rohrer took um, the notes of Luther's lectures in a Latin shorthand of... Oh, and this is, by the way, another point. The students invented their own Latin shorthand so they could keep up with Luther. Right. This is like a court reporter, right? He, he talked quickly. Once again, well of history reflection. <laughs> hmm. That, as you pointed out, Luther has his folia. He has his scolia, right? He has his notes. But this man, if you've ever looked at his church postals, was verbose, to say the least, and could really go off on a tangent, especially as we get into these lectures, you'll discover he can spend whole pages on a subject that has almost no tangential relationship to the original text. Right. Something will just catch him in the moment. He'll run. You kind of feel like, um, hey, kids, keep up. You know? Right. He definitely was somebody who thought out loud. Mm, yeah. Which is why there's so much of Luther's works floating around. But nonetheless, to keep up with him, they invented their own shorthand. And the other students took it up and learned it so they could take notes that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just brilliant. So the brothers, Kruseger, Rohr, and Dietrich, so diligently sealed them into this written work that I must confess all of them are mine, if not more, as they appear in this publication attributed to me. For my heart is governed by only this one fundamental truth, namely, faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. He is from whom, by whom, and toward whom all my theological studies revolve continually day and night. Another nice aspect of this commentary that this translation is that Camacho in the footnotes um, gives room for all of the relevant Latin phrases. Yeah, or, or Greek in some places too. Or Greek in some places. So that as you read, if you do have your Latin and Greek up the snuff, and you ask, well, why would he translate it that way? Mm-hmm. He gives you he gives you the relevant Latin or Greek phrases. I yeah, and that. I think he particularly does that when you might be challenged by by what, what uh, he's translated, right? Certainly, right. Yeah. Where it seems a little... Um, you know, pushing the envelope, if you like, right. from Luther. Well, and this goes back to the point that I made, is that Luther himself notes uh, that Scripture is like a wax nose, he calls it, you know, especially translations of Scripture, commentaries for certain. That is, what is a wax nose? Well, you can bend it any way you want. You can shape right. it and mold it to whatever shape you want. And the further away from God's Word you get, the more wiggly that nose becomes. Mm. So to continue then, He is from whom, by whom, and toward whom all my theological studies revolve continually day and night. And even so, I realize that I cannot even come anywhere near the height, width, and depth of such great and priceless wisdom. You will only see some rickety and tattered signposts strewn along the way. (laughs) That's what he refers to his lectures as, rickety and tattered signposts. That's a humility there. That's That's so great. I am ashamed that my comments, so barren and cold, are placed next to the apostles, a chosen vessel of God. Hmm. But shame on my shame, I must be forceful and bold. There is an infinite and horribly profane abomination that has always raged against God's church. To this day, it continues to rage without let up against the solid rock 
that rock is the unique place of our justification. Hmm. With all confidence, we can say that we are justified, not by our own works, which are less than we are, but through relief provided outside of us. Hmm. That relief is none other than God's only son. He has redeemed us from sin, death, and the devil, and has given to us the gift of eternal life. This is the preface, folks. We're not even into the good stuff yet. Yeah. And this is good stuff. But right at the heart and center of what what his work is, uh, as he said in the first paragraph, is that everything revolves around faith in Christ. Right? Exactly. For That's your the whole point. That's the point. Right. Why lecture on Galatians? To make Christ all in all. Why preach? To make Christ all in all. Why be a Christian? And this is why um, the article, Article 4 of Augsburg Confession is called the article by which on the which church, stands church stands or, or falls. If, mm. if Christ's forgiveness is not what it's about, then then it's there's no point. Wait, it's right? not ecclesiastical order? Are you sure? Hmm, pretty sure. Marriage of priests? No. <laughs> exactly. So Luther continues then, Satan certainly rammed against this rock in paradise when he persuaded our first parents that they could be like God through their own wisdom and power. They turned their backs on faith in God, who had given them life and the promise to prolong it. Soon after, this liar and assassin, but always true to himself, Hmm. incited Cain to turn against his brother and take his life. There was no other reason but that his pious brother, by faith, offered a more excellent sacrifice. But Cain offered his own works without faith and did not please God. Mm -hmm. Thereafter followed the most intolerable persecution of this same faith, from Satan through the children of Cain, until God was moved to purify the earth by means of the flood and defend Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Mm. This is a reflection on Paul's own treatment of these events, right? Correct, correct. Right, because if you read Genesis and the account of Cain and Abel on the surface, Mm -hmm. um, you may not come to this conclusion, right? Well, you might come to the conclusion that Abel's sacrifice was purer based on Abel's integrity than Cain's. Or to you say, may well, be, it's really the purity of the sacrifice that matters, or or the quantity or quality, right? Because right, Abel's that's what I mean. Yeah. With with fat, it's the fat portions, and right. And but Cain, that's the good part, you know. Yeah, yeah. he just gives grain, Preferred. grain, yeah, whatever, you know. But that's not the point. We all like bacon. Yeah, it's like my wife when I cook up something, I'll cook a steak, right, and they'll cook the steak for the kids, and then Annie will come in and say, "Well, we need to have a vegetable with that," and all the kids look at her with that that disappointment in their eyes. Like, why? We're having steak. And if it is a vegetable, it's a starch. <laughs> well, we usually go with broccoli or something like that. But usually, yeah, when you go to a restaurant, for example, it's potatoes. Mm-hmm. Versus when I cook steak for the kids and I ask for a side dish, or they, I ask what side dish they want, it's usually, well, bacon, of course, with butter. In a bowl. <laughs> Word. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so, but uh, I sear my steak in pork lard. So, it's, I'm doubling down. That's good. It's gospel goodness. Hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. There was no other reason, right, that that Cain murdered his brother other than his brother had faith. And Cain offered his works without faith. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, and did not please God. Yeah, so it's, it's actually um, two churches, basically, uh, warring against each other. Exactly, which Luther draws out in the Genesis lectures. There are two churches, the Church of Abel and the Church of Cain. Mm-hmm. The Church of the Promise. I think this is somewhere else having to do with Isaac and Ishmael. I think Paul covers this in one of his letters. Hmm, maybe. Something about two churches, child of promise and we child of the slave woman. Uh, like chapter four, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So thereafter, that is following Cain's murder of Abel, the faith is persecuted hmm. through the children of Cain until God purifies the earth by means of the flood to defend Noah. Notwithstanding... Then Luther goes on to say, Satan extended his seed in Ham, Noah's third son, and in others far too many to mention. After these things, the whole world went insane against this faith. Hmm. It created an infinite number of idols and strange religions. And as a result, it'd be fun. Why not? As a result, as Paul said, each one went his own way, trusting in his own works. You'll notice 
every religion ever invented has one common theme, Mm -hmm. our works and whether or not the gods will pay attention to them and reward us for them. Yeah, no matter how different they may look, they're all the same Tower of Babel, right? They are, for sure. Mm -hmm. I would argue. And if you don't know that or disagree, go study world religions. And unlike what uh, our friend like Eric Brown would say about ancient aliens, the reason why there are ziggurats or pyramids all over the (laughs) earth is because this has always been the point, is let's try to get ourselves uh, into God's place. Right. Many branches, but one tree. Mm Mm-hmm. That's, that's religion in a nutshell. The old Adam's religion, it might have many branches, but it comes from the same root. So, continues Luther, some hoped to pacify and please a certain god, others a goddess, others many gods, and yet others many goddesses. Hmm. That is, without the relief brought by Christ. And through their own works, they hoped to redeem themselves from all their ills and sins, as the deeds and writings of all nations abundantly testify. Wow. That is amazing. It's good stuff. So good. So jumping ahead in his preface to the next page, Luther continues, Thus, since Christ became a mockery among his Christians, because Christians they will be called, and because Cain continually kills Abel, and Satan's abomination now reigns supreme, it is necessary that we diligently pay attention to this pivotal doctrine and turn it around against Satan, no matter whether we are rude or eloquent, educated or uncouth. For if everyone else should keep quiet, this massive boulder should be proclaimed by the rocks and stones themselves. Yeah. And by massive boulder, he means justification. He means Christ. A pivotal doctrine or, uh, what does he say, fulcrum in the the footnote? Mm, The the hinge. The hinge and... uh, this is a problem for us because we'd like to think of the work of the church as being gentle and kind and peaceful right. and patient, right. you know, and, and these are certainly fruits that the Spirit works in us. Um, but the actual doctrine of, of Christ crucified right. is there's no way around its offense. There's no way around right. it being this rock that falls upon you and right. devastates you, right? It was either Oswald Bayer or Bernard Loza who said that <clears throat> justification by faith alone is a polemical doctrine. It's fighting words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is, yeah. you're not trying to start a fight by preaching justification by faith alone and Christ alone. It simply is. It's a frontal assault on the old Adam. It's combative language by its very nature because it is God's final and decisive assault on the whole matter of sin, death, and hell. And regardless of whether you believe in um, a god or goddesses or many gods or many goddesses, mm-hmm. you're looking to your works to redeem yourself. And this Correct. undermines that religion right. of, of our heart. <laughs> right. As I was texting you this morning after I, I um, did some work mm-hmm. online, when you point out that it's not we who pray, but the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us, because we don't know how to pray as we ought to, as Romans 8 says, <clears throat> you're met by the old Adam with, well, but if I can't pray as I ought to, why bother praying at all? Mm-hmm. Well, I just told you why. You pray because the Holy Spirit works in you to express out of you a prayer. So you don't pray, actually. You've never prayed faithfully Mm-mm. in and of yourself. It is the Holy Spirit who prays faithfully in and of himself in and through you. And that then is a sign to you that the Holy Spirit is at work in you because you're praying in Christ's name, the Lord's Prayer. And he intercedes with with groanings that can't even be expressed, right? Too deep for words, exactly. You can't even express the words that the Holy Spirit speaks on your behalf. Mm. And therefore, that is a sign that God is at work because atheists... And people who worship other gods and goddesses don't pray that way. Yeah, and they prattle about with their wordy prayers, right? Right. For the, yeah, their many words, as Jesus says about the religious leaders, mm-hmm. they want to be recognized by their many words, their very pious words. Great prayer, and Pastor. Yeah, exactly. You really nailed the prayer of the church today, buddy. Uh, beautiful. <laughs> so Luther continues. Then that is why I am more than willing to hereby fulfill my duty and allow the publication of this commentary so full of words to incite all my brothers in Christ, to counter the trickery and evil crookedness of Satan. In these last days, he has greatly raged against this plain knowledge of Christ. So much so that even today, those who seemed to be possessed by furious demons 
without respite, seem to be possessed by worse devils and rage with greater fury than the one before. Yeah, it gets even worse. Yeah, it doesn't go grace upon grace. It goes from malicious evil to more malicious evil in the world and apparently in the church. Because you either, I mean, that's the reality. Either you believe the doctrine Mm -hmm. by the work of the spirit or you rage against it. Exactly. Yeah, there's no demilitarized zone. The more the gospel is preached for your salvation, uh, those who oppose, the more they're going to... um, opposed right and he luther makes this in this point in the conclusion to the bondage of the will when he says the more the natural man hears the word of god the more rebellious he becomes Mm -hmm. yeah the word of god doesn't tame the old adam it actually stirs him up to misbehave even worse wait a minute i thought the law was given to instruct us to make our old adam better when the command came against coveting and i became aware of what coveting was i ceased to covet wait a minute where is that written Oh, well. <laughs> right. No, I don't. Something coveting beyond all measure. I think it's all I could think about day and night was coveting after I became aware of coveting. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, the, the point there is that the our relationship to the law, um, God reveals to us very poignantly through Paul right. in, Galatians, to, in the letter right. of the Galatians. Yeah. Exactly. All this is an immensely powerful argument that the enemy of truth and life knows that the day of judgment is near, which is the day of his destruction. But for us, it is the day of our redemption and the end of his tyranny over us. His anger is not without reasons, because his members and powers are under assault, as when a thief or an adulterer, when morning comes and his wickedness is exposed, is caught red-handed. So maybe maybe in regards to the church, I mean, this is something to be attentive to. Maybe it's not universally true, but if if there is peace, that is not the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, but it's actually you know, kind of an earthly peace, a human peace. You have to wonder, then, is the gospel actually even being preached? Was that G.K. Chesterton who was asked that question about what would a city look like if it was completely ruled by the devil and sin? Hmm. Or was it C.S. Lewis? I can't remember if C.S. Lewis was referring to Chesterton or vice versa. But but when asked the question, I think it was Chesterton, when he was asked, for example, Philadelphia, what would happen if Philadelphia was ruled by the devil? And he said, well, there would be complete peace and no crime. Mm -hmm. Because everybody's desires and every cravings would be satisfied and, and given and met. That's the way the devil works. Yeah, and there'd be no opposition to the things that we enjoy. Right. We tend to think, well, if the devil was in charge, it would be chaos and anarchy. And it'd be like that movie, The Purge, where people are murdering <laughs> each other in the streets and robbing each other and looting. No, actually, it would be very peaceful. Aren't there already like four sequels? Yes, I think there might be. I don't know. <laughs> I can't keep track of these things. But nonetheless, yeah, when Satan's in charge, everything is peaceful. Especially in the church. If you look at Zephaniah, for example, Mm -hmm. Zephaniah comes and says, your false prophets preach peace when all around you there is nothing but conflict and the threat of war, the the clouds of war are on the horizon. Yeah, they come saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. There is no peace. Why? To pacify the populace, Hmm. to keep them under your thumb. But rather, this is the problem with Christian freedom, of course. The reason that Christian freedom is such a dirty, dirty word, even to Christians, is Free to do what? Mm. Well, we we know inherently, given enough rope, we'll hang ourselves. That's right. Yeah, we're terrified and, of the idea. Right. It's like <laughs> we were talking in the car on the way to school this morning about why are people afraid to touch dead bodies, whether it's a dead animal, even a dead insect, but especially at a funeral when it, there's an open casket, why are people afraid to reach in and touch the body? Well, disgusting. What is it that... Right, it's just, that's actually the word I used. It disgusts us. Death disgusts us. I said, but that's at a very primal, guttural level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't we don't define it. We don't talk about it, but it's there. And you'll notice if you pay attention, almost everybody shares that same instinct: don't touch dead things. Mm-hmm. That's why we put walls around the cemetery. Who the hell are we trying to keep in? Or trying to keep the animals out, maybe. Or exactly, who we're trying to keep out? <clears throat> I think we're trying to keep them in personally. For God, for, God forbid, the tombs are opened. I think it scares us. I think that's why zombies are so popular, right? What are what are the most famous genres of horror? Vampires, the undead. Zombies, the undead. Frankenstein's monster, mm-hmm. these kinds of things. We are terrified of death and decay. And as a consequence, the entire world is up in arms and is completely and always in a state of unrest because, well, we all die. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And there are, everything in the world reminds us of that. All of our relationships, why do we work? Yeah. Why do why do we sweat when we work? Why does this such backbreaking work? Why do we wage war against each other? All of these things. It's like uh, C.F.W. Walter says on First uh, Corinthians fifteen, his apostle. He talks about how um, how death is the is the world's preacher. That no matter yeah, how much right. you silence, you know the the message mm-hmm. of the gospel in the church, death is always preaching. You know, the, in other words, the Correct. law is always there, uh, right. accusing and showing us our sin. Well, and Luther, to that point on Psalm 23, Luther refers to the rod and staff of the devil as being sin and death. Hmm. There you go. That the rod and staff of the devil, the good news, the long gospel of the devil is, here's your sin, and here's the death that are the wages of sin, and that's how he chases us out of the kingdom of Christ, Luther says. Because he, he says that these things are damnable, right? Right, to you, right. You are in Christ. That but, the only yeah. power he has is to threaten and scare us. He can't destroy us, but he can scare us so badly Mm-hmm. that we actually run into the kingdom of Satan and actually give ourselves over to him. Yeah, in shame and in despair, yeah. Exactly. So to skip over now to the next page, and the reason I'm skipping around is I'm trying to grab the kind of relevant points of the preface so we can get through it and not spend the next five hours discussing this. And we do know that our listeners, on average, listen to about 80% of our episodes, so... And there we go. We don't want to get too so, long. <laughs> we're doing this for you. We're doing this because we love you. Yeah. So to continue, this is the preface, Luther's preface, on page, what, 19? 19. Mm-hmm. Roman numeral 19. Bottom of the page. In the same way, the papist until today insists on works that assume the virtue of the human being contrary to grace, and thus, at least in word, vigorously come to the rescue of their brothers, the Anabaptists. Yeah, and I think, I feel like we've made this point, and I don't know if I drew it from Luther or not, but how comparable, even today, Mm-hmm. The Roman Church is to the evangelicals, right? Absolutely, it's the same theology. It's just a different polity, right? Yeah. Well, and I think I pointed out to you on one occasion where I was in at an event where there were both, you know, uh, Romans and and evangelicals, and they all mm-hmm. knew the same songs, but they didn't right. know. But they weren't Luther. They weren't songs that we would sing, <laughs> but they knew right, them exactly. Yeah, that they more than happy to say we both. You know, it's all about grace. But even though they operate with slightly different def- definitions of grace, definitely different from the one that the scriptures teach. Right. Well, I was going to say here at Thanksgiving time, there's an ecumenical worship service, and it's Roman Catholics and evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Or around the flagpole, right? You get that one too. That too. That's right. And so to skip, that's and so Luther is essentially pointing out they're both fanatics. When Luther writes against the fanatics, he's not just writing against the papists, but mm-hmm. he's also writing against. The Anabaptists, the Zwinglians, those who would later come to be called Protestants, mm-hmm. because what are they protesting against? The sacraments, the efficacy of the sacraments, the real presence of Christ in the sacraments. They would they would place the virtuous works of the Christian above the works of God in the sacraments. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. That's why you dedicate yourself, you don't get baptized, or you choose when to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Baptism That's is what, the seal for them of what you've already done. Correct, right. It's a sign to God that you're committed to this cause. Mm. Kind of like the put a ring on it, right? Yeah, put a ring on it, exactly. And so in the same way, the papists until the day insist on works that assume the virtue of the human being, contrary to grace, and thus, at least in word, vigorously come to this to the rescue of their brothers, the Anabaptists. These foxes are all tied together at the tail, even though their heads point in opposite directions. That's such a perfect analogy for this. It is. It's it's visual. <laughs> yeah. To all appearances they pretend to be great enemies, but on the inside, they all think, teach, and defend the same things against Christ, who is our only righteousness. Hmm. Therefore, everyone who is able, let him hang on to this one principle, and the rest who have shipwrecked or who have already shipwrecked, let the wind and the waves wash them away until they come back to ship or can swim to shore. But we will have more to say about the Anabaptists later, if the Lord Jesus Christ allows it. Amen. Now, again, he's not being hyperbolic. He literally means if the plague doesn't kill us, if the Turks don't overtake us, if the Roman Catholic army, the Roman Empire doesn't invade, if I don't die, we'll get to this. (laughs) Yeah. And he's written against the Anabaptists before. Oh, yes, he has. A few times. Yes, he has. Yeah, a few times. And for those listening, the Anabaptists became the Baptists. 
Yeah. Very simple transition. Ironically, they just rebranded. Ironically, yes, they dropped the negative and they became the positive. Right. Even though they still denied baptism. Right. Kind of yeah. like the Mormons, they've rebranded now. They're the la- they're not the Latter-day, the Church of Latter-day Saints, they're just Latter-day Saints. That's how they want to be known. Oh, I wonder what the new brand is. We're not was. Mormons. They they now say that calling a person Mormon is derogatory. Oh. That's They're handy. not Mormons, they're Latter-day Saints. Hmm. They're trying to rebrand. <clears throat> so in the Camacho translation, then there's a note here following the Amen. The previous appeared in the first edition, 1535. Mm-hmm. In the second, 1538, and subsequent editions, the following paragraphs were added after quote unquote swim to shore. And so I'm going to actually conclude Luther's thought from his preface with this next paragraph rather yeah. than cut it off. Yeah. The sum and the end of this dispute is that it's not worth it to wait for calm or for the dispute to end, as long as Christ and Belial are not in agreement. Hmm. Quote, one generation goes and another generation comes, unquote. If one heresy dies, not much later another one springs up. For the devil neither slumbers nor sleeps. I myself, although I am nothing, already have 20 years in the ministry of Christ. I attest to have been pestered by over (laughs) 20 sects, some of which have already perished. Others, like parts of a dismembered insect, are still twitching. (laughs) So so poignant. How do you not love this stuff? Mm. Even if you're not Lutheran, even if you hate Luther's theology, you have to enjoy his language. Yeah, I mean, because he's drawing like, what, three analogies in there at least, right? Mm Kind of like the the seed bed with all the weeds keep popping up. You can't seem to stay ahead of it. Right. And how many of them actually end up dying on their own and then, but yet they're kind of not quite dead right. yet. <laughs> right. Twitching. I just want to point out, Luther is sitting in his study, writing up his notes, writing up this preface here. Right. And he sees a bug dead, yeah. twitching on the windowsill. Yeah. And his first thought is, that reminds me of the Anabaptists. <laughs> that reminds me of all the sects that have sprung up since this whole Reformation thing began. Mm-hmm. That's why I love Luther. Yeah. Well, he sees <laughs> he sees the stuff of creation. That's right. The the reality right. around him as being really like a teaching moment. I mean, they, it, correct. It it shows you right. It shows you the truth. And once again, as we talked about in the Erasmus, the debate with Erasmus, Luther goes into the scriptures to in, to exegete his life and his experiences. Erasmus goes into the scriptures to exegete mm-hmm. scriptures with his life. So it's it's a reversal. Erasmus takes his life and experience into the scriptures and then uses that to exegete them. Essentially, when he asks, what does this mean? He's letting his experience dictate the direction of the conversation. Yeah. <clears throat> when Luther asks what this means, he's allowing the word of God to determine the direction that, that his experience goes. Right. And therefore, everything around him is informed by the word of God. Well, and that's Luther's, um, you know, that's really the genesis of everything that happens with Luther is that he recognizes that as an Augustinian monk, he's a presuppositionalist, right? Philosophically. Yeah. He's got presuppositions yeah. when he approaches the text, <coughs> not letting Excuse the text me. speak. And by mm-hmm. the time we get to Galatians, it's like, yes, his his public teaching now is, is pr- probably on the whole in agreement with what God right. has revealed through St. Paul and Galatians. Right. And that's a key point that he brings up that you just alluded to again is his teaching is public because the gospel of Jesus Christ is public. Yeah. It is always a public gospel. For Dr. Luther, again, being pre-modern, there's no such thing for him as a private faith, a faith that is dislocated from the church, capital C church, but also a faith that is dislocated from the word of God, which is curated by the Holy Spirit in the community of saints through the sending of a preacher, through the gifts. I'm always struck so, by people who like to keep the church doors closed during service. Correct. Because they're worried yeah. about noises and people maybe yeah. walking in. Like, right. Um, that's kind that's of That's actually point. the point, yeah. We're in the world, not right. of the world, and we want the world to right. hear. And uh, that's why um, Christian churches, on the whole, mm-hmm. not entirely, but on the whole, have windows. Whereas if correct. you do look at like a Latter-day Saints, whatever they call them, uh, or Kingdom Halls, those are Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses, there's yeah. no windows. There's um, no windows, mosques exactly. Mosques don't have windows either. Mm-hmm. No images. And no images. They. That's what they, I mean. That they, they read, when they read the law against vain images or whatever false uh, gods, graven images, there we mm-hmm. go, um, they take that literally. Thus, the heavenly prophets tore down the statuaries and smashed out the stained glass windows in the church. And bricked them up. That's right. And bricked them up, exactly. 
And therefore, yes, that's the thing is that for Luther, all of that teaches. Mm. It's just a tool. For them, it becomes a false idol. Right. But but in <laughs> becomes a false idol to them, but it, their response to it ends up t- showing us or teaching us what they actually believe about what they what they preach, which is Correct. that it's for us but not for you. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So therefore, as as we're discussing, there's no private quote unquote private mass. Luther attacks private masses. Why? Because Correct. the Lord's Supper, the mass, is a New Testament public proclamation of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. righteousness from God that comes through Jesus Christ. And therefore, as we've talked about in relation to Luther's tweaking of the mass, the German mass, Luther points out, when you speak the words of institution, you are to face the congregation because it is gospel. Yeah. And even and if so your practice isn't to, speak loudly. Yeah. <laughs> speak. Yes, exactly. Make sure they um, hear you. Right. Well, and this, uh, this is a rabbit trail, so I'll make it quick, but this is what happens when you replace the chalice with individual cups. You have those trays mm-hmm, that yeah. require you to hold them with two hands because <laughs> they're separable, separable versus when you have a chalice, it's a lot easier to turn around and face the congregation. Mm-hmm. You have the host, you have the chalice, two hands, two objects, done. But when you have trays and you have individual wafers and so forth and so on, all of a sudden now you're like, okay... I got it. How we distribute this again? How do I elevate this stuff at the same time just that, kind of without dropping it, it? I guess, right? Yeah, you just point at it. Yeah, you stand aside and point at it. <laughs> Make a little cross sign over it or something. There we go. But nonetheless, the, Luther's point is that the gospel is always to be proclaimed publicly for you. That's the gospel. Let everything be exposed to the light of the truth. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that's the end of the preface. I think that's a good place to wrap that up. Yeah. And uh, we'll dive into, let's hear it for self-righteousness in the next uh, episode. <laughs> I, think, I think we have to do this, you know, the title page and, uh, and this table of contents, which is really profound. Right. It is fantastic. It's a good conversation. So maybe we'll do that in Luther's introduction next time. Okay. Um, but let's do that. And as always, one, thank you for your support. And we really, truly appreciate the feedback. Uh, we love you for it. Leave us positive reviews at iTunes, please. Go subscribe. Go to uh, Higher Things website and subscribe to the other podcasts in the Higher Things podcast network. And what else? Go buy Gillespie's coffee. Support mm-hmm. him. He's got a big move ahead of him. He needs the money. Yeah, I'm going to be and, cash poor uh, for a while. There we go. And come back next week for a brand new podcast on Luther's commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians, 1535, translated by Geraldo Camacho. Yep, link in the show notes. See ya. <laughs>